Congregation, our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. It's my privilege to welcome you this morning and also the guests in our midst. I do that in Christian manner. Grace and peace to you from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ, who gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil age, according to the will of our God and Father, to whom be the glory forever. Amen. We're going to begin by singing God's praises as they come to us in Psalm 99, the verses 2 and 3. rescued his people from their slavery in Egypt and brought them to himself at Mount Sinai, the first thing that he did was to appear on the mountain and to speak with his own voice the words of the Ten Commandments. And it's those Ten Commandments that we hear also this morning as our rule of thankfulness for our rescue and deliverance from our slavery to sin through the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, God's Son. We're going to respond with the singing from the same psalm, Psalm 99, the verses 5 and 6. God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image, any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them nor serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers upon the children to the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing mercy to thousands to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall do no work, you, nor your son, nor your daughter, nor your male servant, nor your female servant, 
nor your cattle, nor your stranger who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Honour your father and your mother, that your days may be long upon the land which the Lord your God is giving you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife, nor his male servant, nor his female servant, nor his ox, nor his donkey, nor anything that is your neighbor's. Father, we give you thanks and praise that we may know in faith that today churches all over the world will be singing your praises and that their praises and ours will combine before your heavenly throne on the true Mount Zion in heaven, that they will come before you, for at your right hand sits your Son, Jesus Christ. We have just sung, Lord, how you indeed are a God who both forgives and yet punishes sin. We thank you that you have communicated to us your gospel of grace and mercy, whereby we may know that we, if we embrace your Son, Jesus Christ, by faith, He was punished for our sin, and that thereby we may receive full pardon from you. And so we lay all of our sins before you, and we ask, Lord, that you would cover them with the blood of your Son, Jesus Christ, that you would assure us of that forgiveness 
as you continue to work in us by your word and spirit, that we, Lord, all the more may show genuine thankfulness to you in our lives through the power or so that you grant us in your word and spirit. And so we're going to be reading from that holy word again this morning, Lord, and hearing an exposition of it, and we ask that you would bless that such that we would be encouraged and strengthened in our faith. We ask this in the name of your Son, our living Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who together with you and the Holy Spirit receives all glory and honor forevermore. Amen. In the letter of James, we read that if a brother or sister is poorly clothed, and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled, without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. And you are given the opportunity to show by your gifts and offerings also that same regard for the poor and the needy in the collection Following upon the collection, we will be singing together from Psalm 132, the verses 1, 2, and 3.
Our scripture readings are from the books of Samuel. We'll be looking to answer the question, how did the Ark of God's Covenant end up in the fields of Jair? <clears throat> 1 Samuel chapter 4. And we'll read the first 11 verses. And the word of Samuel came to all Israel. Now, Israel went out to battle against the Philistines and encamped beside Ebenezer. And the Philistines encamped in Aphek. Then the Philistines put themselves in battle array against Israel. And when they joined battle, Israel was defeated by the Philistines, who killed about 4,000 men of the army in the field. And when the people had come into the camp, the elders of Israel said, Why has the Lord defeated us today before the Philistines? Let us bring the ark of the covenant of the Lord from Shiloh to us, that when it comes among us, it may save us from the hand of our enemies." So the people sent to Shiloh that they might bring from there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas were there with the Ark of the Covenant of God. And when the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord came into the camp, all Israel shouted so loudly that the earth shook. Now when the Philistines heard the noise of the shout, they said, what does the sound of this great shout in the camp of the Hebrews mean? Then they understood that the ark of the Lord had come into the camp. So the Philistines were afraid, for they said, God has come into the camp. And they said, Woe to us, for such a thing has never happened before. Woe to us. Who? will deliver us from the hand of these mighty gods. These are the gods who struck the Egyptians with all the plagues in the wilderness. Be strong and conduct yourselves like men, you Philistines, that you do not become servants of the Hebrews as they have been to you. Conduct yourselves like men and fight. So the Philistines fought, and Israel was defeated, and every man fled to his tent. There was a very great slaughter, and there fell of Israel 30,000 foot soldiers. Also the ark of God was captured, and the two sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phinehas died. The ensuing chapters talk about how the Philistines had a difficult time with the Ark of God. Everywhere it went, they were plagued. And then we read in chapter 6, from verse 1. Now the Ark of the Lord was in the country of the Philistines 
seven months. And the Philistines called for the priests and the diviners, saying, What shall we do with the ark of the Lord? Tell us how we should send it to its place. So they said, If you send away the ark of the God of Israel, do not send it empty, but by all means return it to him with a trespass offering. Then you will be healed, and it will be known to you why his hand is not removed from you. And they said, What is the trespass offering which we shall return to him? They answered, Five golden tumors and five golden rats, according to the number of the lords of the Philistines. For the same plague was on all of you and on your lords. We skip ahead to verse 13 when it finally arrives at an Israelite town. Now, the people of Beth Shemesh were reaping their wheat harvest in the valley. And they lifted their eyes and saw the ark and rejoiced to see it. Then the cart came into the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh and stood there. A large stone was there. So they split the wood of the ark of the cart and offered the cows as a burnt offering to the Lord. The Levites took down the ark of the Lord and the chest that was with it, in which were the articles of gold, and put them on the large stone. Then the men of Beth Shemesh offered burnt offerings and made sacrifices the same day to the Lord. So when the five lords of the Philistines had seen it, they returned to Ekron the same day. These are the golden tumors which the Philistines returned as a trespass offering to the Lord, one for Ashdod, one for Gaza, one for Ashkelon, one for Gath, one for Ekron. And the golden rats, according to the number of all the cities of the Philistines, belonging to the five lords, both fortified cities and country villages, even as far as the large stone of Abel, on which they had set the ark of the Lord, which stone remains to this day in the field of Joshua of Beth Shemesh. Then he, that is God, struck the men of Beth Shemesh, because they had looked into the ark of the Lord. He struck 50,070 men of the people, and the people lamented because the Lord had struck the people with a great slaughter. And the men of Beth Shemesh said, Who is able to stand before this holy Lord God? And to whom shall it go up from us? So they sent messengers to the inhabitants of Kiriath Yerim, saying, The Philistines have brought back the ark of the Lord. Come down and Take it up with you. And the men of Kiriath Yerim, which literally means village of the woods, came and took the ark of the Lord and brought it into the house of Abinadab on the hill and consecrated Eleazar, his son, to keep the ark of the Lord. So it was that the ark remained in Kiriath Yerim a long time, and it was there twenty years and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. We turn now to 2 Samuel 6. Twenty years, indeed, have now passed. And the ark has moved. Moved up to the city 
which David has recently conquered, the city of Jabush, which is renamed Jerusalem. 2 Samuel 6. Again, David gathered all the choice men of Israel, 30,000. And David arose and went there with all the people who were with him from Baalah, Baale Yehudah, to bring up from there the Ark of God, whose name is called by the name the Lord of Hosts, who dwells between the cherubim. So they set the Ark of God on a new cart and brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill. And Uzzah and Ahio, the sons of Abinadab, drove the new cart. And they brought it out of the house of Abinadab, which was on the hill accompanying the ark of God. And Ahio went before the ark. And then David and all the house of Israel played music before the Lord on all kinds of instruments of fir wood, on harps, on stringed instruments, on tambourines, on sistrums, and on cymbals. And when they came to Nahon's threshing floor, Uzzah put out his hand to the ark of God and took hold of it, for the oxen stumbled. Then the anger of the Lord was aroused against Uzzah, and God struck him there for his error, and he died there by the ark of God. And David became angry because of the Lord's outbreak against Uzzah, and he called the name of the place Perez Uzzah to this day. David was afraid of the Lord that day. And he said, how can the ark of the Lord come to me? So David would not move the ark of the Lord with him into the city of David. But David took it aside into the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite. The ark of the Lord remained in the house of Obed-Edom, the Gittite, three months and the Lord blessed Obed-Edom and all his household. Now it was told King David, saying, The Lord has blessed the house of Obed-Edom and all that belongs to him because of the ark of God. So David went and brought up the ark of God from the house of Obed-Edom to the city of David with gladness. And so it was, when those bearing the ark of the Lord had gone six paces, that he sacrificed oxen and fatted sheep. Then David danced before the Lord with all his might, and David was wearing a linen ephod. So David and all the house of Israel brought up the ark of the Lord with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. Now, as the ark of the Lord came into the city of David, Mishal, Saul's daughter, looked through a window and saw King David leaping and whirling before the Lord, and she despised him in her heart. So they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle that David had erected for it. And David offered burnt offerings and peace offerings before the Lord. And when David had finished offering burnt offerings and peace offerings, he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. And he distributed among all the people, among the whole multitude of Israel, both the women and the men, to everyone a loaf of bread, a piece of meat, and a cake of raisins. So all the people departed, everyone, to his house. We're going to sing in response from Psalm 78, the verses 23, 24, and 25. <clears throat> 
Our text this morning is indeed Psalm 132. A song of ascents. Lord, remember David and all his humility is a better reading here, I think, and all his humility. How he swore to the Lord and vowed to the mighty one of Jacob. Surely, or more literally, May I be punished if I will not go into the chamber of my house or go up to the comfort of my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the woods. Let us go into his tabernacle. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. And let your saints shout for joy. For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He will not turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I shall teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forevermore. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. This is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell, for I have desired it. I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor with bread. I will also clothe her priests with salvation. And her saints shall shout aloud for joy. There I will make the horn of David grow I will prepare a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame, but upon himself his crown shall flourish. Following upon the preaching of God's word, we'll be singing from Psalm 132, verse 5. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, over the last couple of months, we have been looking at these Psalms of Ascents, a series of Psalms that was put together sometime after the exile to celebrate particularly the Feast of Booths, the Harvest Feast, the happy time to celebrate God's great blessings of the harvest for His people, a people that through very many trials and difficulties had come back out of captivity to resettle once again in the promised land, to rebuild the city of Jerusalem, and more importantly, to rebuild the temple on Mount Zion. 
where God once again is worshipped. And as we've been going through these psalms and seeing, as it were, a procession of pilgrims making their way to the holy temple to give thanks to the Lord, in this psalm, 132, all of a sudden we see quite a different chord struck. Compared to the other psalms, this one is actually quite lengthy. And it has quite a different kind of content. The psalm talks about the bond between the Ark of the Covenant, the Ark of God, and David, King David. We'll remember and recall that the Ark of the Covenant was lost in captivity. When the Babylonians came and destroyed Jerusalem and the temple, they took everything, and the Ark of the Covenant was never to be seen again. So why now, after the exile, with a rebuilt temple, when we're all supposed to be happy and rejoicing at the Feast of Booths, are we reminded of the lost ark. And why are we reminded of David and his sons? For despite the return from captivity, there is no Davidic king. The governors over the land of Judah are appointed by the Persians. Now, at the time, they've got a good governor. The Persians have appointed no less than the faithful Jew, Nehemiah. But he's not a descendant of David. This morning we'll take a journey through this psalm and hopefully gradually see its importance both for the exiles and for us. I summarize its content under the following theme, the bond between David and the Ark of the Covenant. And the psalm itself is pretty easily divided in two halves. The first half talks about David's oath to God. The second half is all about God's oath to David. So we'll look firstly at David's oath, secondly at God's oath, and thirdly at the fulfillment. First then, David's oath. So one of the things that makes this a, a very interesting psalm is that it begins with an oath that David swore. In Hebrew, generally speaking, when you swear an oath, you deliberately don't say the, the, difficult, the, uh, the, the difficult part, the, the words that talk about you being punished if you don't keep your word, and you only give the if clause. And Translators struggle on how to do that, how to translate it. Generally speaking, they choose to begin with the word surely instead of if, which is what we've got in our psalm here in verse 3. Surely I will not go into the chamber of my house. But literally, if. The point being, it's an oath. God, please punish me if I don't go into the chamber of my house. Or if I go into the chamber of my house, they've added the not. Um, or if I go up to the comfort of my bed and give sleep to my eyes or slumber to my eyelids. That's literally what he says. If I do that, God, punish me. In other words, surely I won't. But it's set in the context of an oath. 
He swears this to God. I'm not going to go to sleep until I've done this. And what is this? Until I've found a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the mighty one of Jacob. He desires to find a place where God will forevermore be worshipped and where the Ark of the Covenant itself can finally find its way back to its appropriate home in a temple built for God. And you'll remember how at a certain point in David's reign, after he had indeed taken the city of Jebus, he does find that place known as Mount Zion, where the temple will ultimately be built. The first question that confronts us here, though, is the question of whether it was appropriate for David to swear such an oath. That brings us to the question of these kinds of oaths or vows, because each one of us will have in his mind the criticism of the Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount. Doesn't the Lord Jesus say in the Sermon on the Mount, make no oath at all? But if we think about the Sermon on the Mount, brothers and sisters, you will remember that the Lord Jesus is there specifically attacking the traditions of the elders and of the Pharisees. And he is doing that in a deliberately exaggerated way. Make no oath at all, says the Lord Jesus, if it's going to be like the oaths of the Pharisees, where you have a whole scale of different kinds of oaths depending on how close it is to the presence of God. So you could swear by the temple, you could swear by the gate of the temple, you could swear by the city in which the temple is to be found, and there would be different grades on how much you really have to keep that promise if you swear it. And the Lord Jesus is saying, away with that whole system. And indeed, he stresses the fact that you ought not to be swearing an oath for just any reason. Let your yes be yes, and your no, no. But that does not take away the fact that even the Lord Jesus himself, as well as the apostles, from time to time, find it necessary to swear an oath. And not just necessary, but also appropriate. If the Apostle Paul, for example, has been attacked by the Judaizers or by others and saying that, that he's speaking a bunch of nonsense, he will swear an oath as he writes his letter. He will say, as the Lord lives, I'm telling the truth. I am not lying. He is my witness. In other words, calling down upon himself the wrath of God if he is lying. And so it is not necessarily wrong for David to have made an oath like this. And this oath of David also, if you look at it carefully, it's not a request for himself personally. He is promising to God that he will be successful in finding a new permanent location for the Ark of the Covenant, for God to be worshipped. 
And that brings us, brothers and sisters, to the question of the importance of this box, which was called the Ark. And yes, it was a box, in essence, about the size of one of our tea chests, if you've ever seen a tea chest. This box was overlaid with gold, and it was given two seraphs, golden seraphs, watching over the top of it, the lid. You'll remember, of course, in Scripture that a seraph is not quite the same thing as an angel. A seraph has wings, and that word seraph itself literally means a fiery being. Probably for that reason also, they're constructed or their images are constructed of gold, fiery. Because in Scripture, seraphs are the beings which are in the presence of God and protect His throne room, as it were, the guardians of God's presence. And so the ark was to symbolize the very presence of God. It was first constructed at Mount Sinai. God had brought His people out of Egypt, out of their slavery, brought them to Himself. And the very first thing after the Ten Commandments and after the debacle of the golden calf, uh, the very first thing that needs to be done positively is that a, temp a tabernacle needs to be built. That is to say, a kind of a temple that can be packed up and moved from place to place as Israel goes on its journey to Canaan. For God will go with them, and they will be able to see that in this tabernacle, and they'll also be able to worship God there, wherever they are, instead of having to keep going back to Mount Sinai. God has them create this tabernacle according to the pattern that He shows the designers. The pattern is to be a pattern of the real temple, the one in heaven. It's to be a copy, if you will. And so also the Ark of the Covenant, the, the chest that symbolizes God's presence, is a copy of the one that is to be found in the heavenly temple. It is called the footstool in God's throne room. And yes, it symbolizes God's presence. And for the Israelites, it became a very important item. It couldn't be touched. It was to be carried on poles that were inserted through its sides. Remember when they came to the promised land and they had to cross the Jordan? And the way they were to do that was that the priests would carry the Ark of the Covenant in front of the people. They weren't to come near it. They were to be about 900 meters, almost a kilometer away from it, following it as it went with the priests to the waters of the Jordan. The priests stand in the waters of the Jordan, and what happens immediately? The waters bank up. And the people are able to cross on dry land. And the people are shown that God is with His ark. The box that He's had made to symbolize His presence with His people. Now, the ark ended up in the tabernacle 
in a town called Shiloh. It had been often taken into battle. Think only of the battle for the city of Jericho when the ark is marched around the walls seven times before they tumble down. But as we read, it was lost in battle with the Philistines. Why? Well, God's point here is that this Ark of the Covenant is not some kind of magic. And the presence of the Ark of the Covenant among the armies of God's people cannot compensate for a sinful people. And that's exactly what the people of Israel had become at that time. That history of the ark being lost in battle with the Philistines is prefaced by a passage that talks about the priests at that time. The two people that died in that battle, Hophni and Phinehas, they were sons of Eli. Now, of course, Eli was a good man. His sons were not Listen to what Scripture says about them. I read from 1 Samuel 2. Now the sons of Eli were corrupt. They did not know the Lord. And the priest's custom with the people was that when any man offered a sacrifice, the priest's servant would come with a three-pronged flesh hook in his hand while the meat was boiling. Then he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot and the priest would take for himself all that the flesh hook brought up. So they did in Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Also, before they burned the fat, the priest's servant would come and say to the man who sacrificed, Give meat for roasting to the priest, for he will not take boiled meat from you, but raw. And if the man said to him, They should really burn the fat first, then you may take as much as your heart desires. He would then answer him, No. And remember, the fat was to be dedicated only to the Lord God. No, but you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Therefore, the text concludes, the sin of the young men, that's Hophni and Phinehas, the priests, was very great before the Lord, for men abhorred the offering of the Lord. Now you can imagine it. Imagine being an Israelite, an Israelite in a time when the priests are absolutely corrupt. But you still want to bring sacrifice to the Lord because, well, where else are you going to bring your sacrifice? And every time you go there, you see them completely flouting these sacrificial rituals, taking meat for themselves. No wonder you despise the offering of the Lord. In that situation, God allowed His ark to be captured by the Philistines. But it became also very, very clear that when that happened, it wasn't all of a sudden a lack of God's power in the ark. For the Philistines then also encountered the wrath of God. Everywhere the ark went came plagues. What does this teach us, brothers and sisters? Well, the very simple thing is, of course, the fact that going to church or even coming and attending Lord's Supper celebration can never compensate for a life that is led in sin. 
Just going through the motions and even attending Lord's Supper will not put you right with God. God even says in Proverbs verse 28, sorry, chapter 28 verse 9, he says words to the effect of, I'm not even going to listen to the prayer of a man who does not take my law seriously. And it can happen in the church. There can be a sin in your life, whatever it is. Maybe somebody's embroiled in pornography. Maybe it's something entirely different. But if you are not tackling that, if you are not doing anything about it, and you're still coming to church and you would come to Lord's Supper, it means nothing. Because God looks at the heart whether we truly desire to follow him in thankfulness. And then and only then do the symbols that he gives us have great meaning and effect. Well, as I said, it wasn't for any want of power in the ark or with the ark of God at the time. Because of months of plagues, the Philistines eventually decide to give it back to the Israelites. They give it back to the people of Beth Shemesh. Because the people of Beth Shemesh want to look inside the ark now that they have it in their possession. And God punishes them for that as well. And it ends up in a town called Kiriath Yerim, town of the woods. And it's exactly that which is played upon in Psalm 132, verse 6. Behold, we heard of it in Ephrathah. We found it in the fields of the woods, the fields belonging to that town. David swore his oath. And David had conquered, as I said, the town of Jebush and desired to bring the ark there and to build a temple around it. God had told David, eventually through the prophet, that he would not be allowed to actually build the temple, but he would be allowed to make plans for it so that his son, ultimately Solomon, would build it. In this way, David fulfilled his vow by marking out where the temple would come and bringing the ark to Jerusalem. But David also learned through this experience to have a concern and proper respect for God's holiness and worship. When he first tried to move the ark, he did not do it properly either. And at first David couldn't understand why Uzzah had been killed just for touching it. But there arose out of that a better understanding of God's holiness. And then a great caution, awe, and respect for the Lord. For the Lord had said right when the ark was built that it would not be handled, which is why it had poles, that it should not be put on a cart, but that it should be carried. And so the final leg of the journey to Jerusalem was done according to God's word. Holiness is what God needs to be respected for and majesty. When Psalm 132 sings, 
the prayer in verse 9. Or verse 8 and 9. Arise, O Lord, to your resting place, you and the ark of your strength. It then sings, let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Normally in Scripture, when you talk about priests, you talk about their clothing, you say they're clothed in holiness. In other words, they represent the Lord God. They're set apart to His service. Here, righteousness. And why? The ark is retrieved, having been some 20 years in the fields of the woods, looked after in obscurity. Why? Because there were priests who were not clothed with righteousness. They were clothed and bathed in sin. And so when the ark is retrieved, Lord, let your priests be clothed with righteousness and your saints, your faithful or loyal ones, shout for joy. The psalm speaks of this intimate bond between the Ark of the Covenant and David. Verse 10, For your servant David's sake, do not turn away the face of your anointed one. And so, there is this prayer for David's descendants to the throne. It brings us to the second point this morning, God's oath. For God responded to David. You read about this in 2 Samuel 7. But we read about it too in Psalm 132. The Lord has sworn in truth to David. He won't turn from it. I will set upon your throne the fruit of your body. Your sons, if they keep my covenant, may rule over my people. Of course, if you're singing that as a group of exiles, you'll know exactly why you went into captivity in Babylon in the first place, because David's sons didn't keep the covenant. And so they were exiled. However, that promise, that oath of God stands. And so the psalm from verse 13 onwards is brought up to date, as it were, for the exiles. For the Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. And as they sing this psalm, they can see the temple has been rebuilt. Mount Zion is once again the place where God can be worshipped. You see, Zion had been destroyed by the Babylonians. But it's there again. And nevertheless, God had sworn to David, I will abundantly bless her provision. I will satisfy her poor, Israel's poor, with bread. Those promises were directly related to the presence of the Ark of the Lord. If the ark of the Lord is with you, these are the blessings that will come. Do you remember what was inside that box? One of the things, three things were inside that box. One of the things was a pot originally, at least in the time of Moses, a pot of manna. 
the manner with which God had fed his people through the wilderness journey, giving them provision, taking care that nobody starved. That was preserved in the Ark of the Covenant. And so God promises, this is my resting place forever, Mount Zion, here I'm going to dwell, I will abundantly bless her provision, satisfy her poor with bread. It continues in verse 16, I will clothe her priests with salvation. The saints shall shout aloud for joy. Well, if the priests are going to be clothed with salvation, that means their office is going to be effective. Another thing, inside that box of the Ark of the Covenant was the tables of the law. And God's law was there not just as a reminder on how to show thankfulness to God for his deliverance, but the law, as it was worked out, also showed how forgiveness of sins could be obtained through the laws of sacrifice, through the way in which God provided for his people to be able to come to him. And so priests will be clothed with salvation. His people gathered around him for worship will shout for joy. If you'll permit me, it's often in Scripture that Scripture talks about singing the praises of God in terms of shouting. The time of the Reformation, people took that quite literally. And in the churches, when people were supposed to be singing psalms, they didn't sing in our terms. They shouted. They shouted the psalms. Maybe I've said it before, but it's worth saying again. You know, halfway through the 17th century, with all that shouting going on in the Dutch churches and in the big city churches, you had huge cathedrals, right, where up to 3,000 people would gather together and shout the psalms. Eventually, of course, it became a bit of a shouting match and it wasn't very musical at all. And basically, the church leadership finally bowed to the pressure to use an organ in the service to try and get the people to sing the actual tune. When they did, initially, they got the organist to pull all the stops. And this happened right throughout the country. But he couldn't hear the organ. The shouting was too loud. People were shouting for joy. Special organists had to, uh, organ builders had to be employed to construct absolutely raucously loud stops so that it could actually be heard and give some kind of guidance to the singing. I tell the story because I think it's worthwhile reflecting upon, also for us. When we sing the Psalms, What's our attitude? What, what's going on within us? And do we make a joyful noise to the Lord? That's also an expression of Scripture. Because it doesn't matter in a church service. It doesn't matter if you can't keep a tune. It doesn't matter if you can't sing like you're a choir. What matters to the Lord is that we are full of song and shout it out, as it were, for joy to praise Him. And that's what's being talked about here. Her saints shall shout aloud for joy. 
And then the psalm says, then I'll make the horn of David grow. And of course, in Scripture, the horn is like a, a bull that grows a horn. A horn is always the sign of a, a new king who is going to rule. And so the horn of David is the son of David that will come and rule. The Messiah. I'll make the horn of David grow. I'll prepare a lamp for my anointed, my Messiah. And his wreath, the crown on his head shall flourish. Literally, that wreath on his head will sprout flowers. Now, a wreath was made from dead branches, right, that you uh, weave together and make a little crown out of and put on somebody's head. If those dead branches all of a sudden sprout flowers, what does that remind you of? It's the third thing that was in the box of the covenant. Aaron's blossoming rod. Remember the story how God made Aaron's stick blossom to prove that Aaron was the one that he had chosen to be his priest. And now we're told that wreath upon the Messiah will blossom. He shall be mine and I will show it. And once again, if you're in the exile, the returned exiles, and you're singing this psalm, you're living in a period where, yes, you've got the temple on Mount Zion again, but there isn't an Ark of the Covenant anymore. And there isn't, yet, the Messiah. You're yearning for the complete fulfillment of these promises. Which brings us briefly to the final point this morning. What happened to the ark? I think the simplest story is that it was destroyed by the Babylonians. There were, of course, Jewish stories that it must be hidden somewhere. But it has never come to fruition. But if you ask yourself, where's the real ark? Well, then we do hear of that even in the New Testament. In the vision of John in the book of Revelation, as he sees in heaven, where the Lord Jesus has taken his place at the right hand of God. And we read in chapter 11 of Revelation the following. Then, the seventh angel sounded, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, The kingdoms of this world have become the kingdoms of our Lord and of His Christ. And he shall reign forever and ever. Actually, I should have started a few verses earlier. For it says also, There will be an earthquake, great cries. And they fall down. And then in verse 19, after worshipping, we read, The temple of God was opened in heaven. And the ark of his covenant was seen in his temple. And there were lightnings, noises, thunderings, an earthquake, and great hail. For the real ark of the covenant is in the heavenly sanctuary, where the Messiah, our Lord Jesus Christ, has taken up his seat upon the throne. You see, the very last prophet in the Old Testament, Malachi, had promised, yes, 
God will suddenly come to his temple, thinking of Malachi. I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant, in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming. And he did come. He came in the person of God's only begotten Son, Jesus Christ. Do you remember the conversation that Jesus had with that Samaritan woman at the well? We're told about it in John chapter 4. Do you remember what Jesus said there? Jesus intimates to her that he's a prophet. She becomes really interested in the real question for her. Are Jews right or Samaritans? And Jesus says, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know what we worship, for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and in truth. It no longer matters. In the Lord Jesus, when the gospel has gone forth out into the world, it no longer matters whether you worship on the mountain that the Samaritans did or on the mountain that the Jews did in Jerusalem, Mount Zion. For that is all gone. The Lord Jesus is to be worshipped where He is, in the real heavenly temple, where also the genuine ark is to be found. Well, let's come back to Psalm 132. We sing in this psalm that the Lord has chosen Zion, and when we sing that, brothers and sisters, we must think of the heavenly Zion where the Lord Jesus Christ is seated. Where in faith, according to Ephesians 2, we are seated with Him. The horn of David that was promised is Jesus Christ, who was guided through His death and resurrection to become our Savior. And our worship here is directly connected to that heavenly worship in the heavenly temple. I'm thinking of that image that you can read about in Hebrews chapter 12, where we're told as New Testament churches, and of course the letter to the Hebrews is addressing a particular church that it's written to, but it applies to any church. We're told we don't come to Mount Sinai like Israel and Moses to worship God there on a mountain like that. When we come together for worship, we are coming around the heavenly Mount Sinai. And this is the point of the letter to the Hebrews. Every local church on this earth is coming around the heavenly Mount Sinai to worship God there, which is where our worship ascends. And that worship is the single most important thing we do. For the Lord has remembered David. He has fulfilled his promises. Will we then, in turn, shout for joy? For Jesus continues to gather his church throughout the world. And we're a part of that, but only by faith, and only by the faith that produces fruits. No, we don't gather around a physical ark. 
But together in faith, we sing God's praises in His presence. Amen. Let's sing from verse 5 of this psalm. announcements this morning on behalf of the consistory. The consistory will meet with the deacons this coming Tuesday at 7.30pm, Lord willing, and we have been notified that the Free Reformed Church of Albany have extended a call to Reverend Paul and they ask us also to pray that he would be given the necessary wisdom to make a decision that will be obviously glorifying to God and edifying for the churches. In our prayer this morning. We'll also be praying for our brother Julian Swartz, who is still awaiting the beginning of his chemo treatment. We will also pray for our very young brother, Cyrus Bosfeld. In addition, we'll be praying for Eric Hahn and Chris Bruning as they depart for a mission trip to Sumba, Lord willing, this coming Friday. Let us bring these matters before the Lord. Lord and Heavenly Father, we first of all give you thanks and praise that we're able to, in faith, praise your great and holy name, for you have given us every reason. You have fulfilled your promises given so long ago in your Son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And even here in faraway Australia, we are able to gather together to praise your great and holy name, knowing in faith that you will receive our praises, that they will be used before your holy temple in the heavens to form part of that ongoing worship. We thank you, Lord, that we can do that in conjunction with brothers and sisters throughout this world. We're reminded of brothers and sisters in this world, Lord, as we see once again our two brothers, Eric Hahn and Chris Bruning, depart this Friday to Sumba. We ask, Lord, that you would give them traveling mercies, that you would bless them in their endeavors, and that the mission trip may be edifying and upbuilding to all concerned. For we do pray that you would continue also to bless the great efforts that are being done there to further the progress of the gospel. We also ask at the same time, Lord, that you would continue to keep our eyes open, that we would be salt and light 
to those people around us. Where you give us opportunity, we would seize it, trusting that you will grant us the words and the wisdom to be able to communicate that great gift of grace that you have given to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, because we have that gift of your grace and that we know that you watch over us in the same way that you watched over your people so long ago, and that as you symbolized to your people in the Ark of the Covenant, both your presence and through the things that were inside it, the fact that you would care for them, look after them, bringing a gospel of forgiveness and also a fatherly affection. We pray too that you would do the same for us. We pray particularly, Lord, that you would be with little Cyrus Bosfeld, that you would grant healing, that you would grant strength, so that if it be your will, Lord, in your time, he may be taken home to become an integral part of the family of Grant and Lisa, to be raised as your child. We pray, Lord, too, that you would be with our brother Jurian Swartz, that if it is your will, he soon may also begin the treatment, and that you would bless that treatment, for that we know, Lord, it is completely in vain without your blessing. We pray too, Lord, for his brother Jack, that you would continue to bless the treatments given to him. We ask too, Lord, that you would be with all of us. For you know better than we do the things that we wrestle with on a day-to-day basis. We ask, Lord, that you would grant each and every one of us what we need to be able to use our gifts and talents to your glory in the furtherance of your kingdom. We pray that you would give us all wisdom to be able to interact both with each other and with those around us in the world with a love that radiates the love that you have shown to us in Jesus Christ, your Son. For we ask this in his name. For yours is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever. Amen. And just as I close that prayer, I remember that I did not pray yet for the call to Reverend Paul, but we'll do that this afternoon. Our final song this morning you will find in Psalm 132, the verses 8 and 9.
May the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen.